We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. Hi, Casper. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Casper and Vanessa. Hi, Casper. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and everyone over at the Sacred Text team. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, the, the Owl Post, Post Edition. edition. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to our seasonal Owl Post episode. Casper, do we have any business at the top of the show? We do. Our crowdfunder is one week old today, and we have got off to a great start. Thank you so, so much to everyone who's already donated and pitched in. It's amazing to like see that people care about this project, so I'm really grateful. It's going to take a big team effort to make this happen, and thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you with us. Now, Vanessa, this episode is going to feature a number of our wonderful listeners sending us our post and also one of our good friends, Rabbi Scott Perlow, who is going to introduce a practice called Pardes, which if we can get that 30 grand together, we'll be able to use in series three. So stay tuned and here we go. This first voicemail is from Christina Richardson. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Chrissy Richardson, and I am originally from Baltimore, Maryland, but I'm currently living in Lincoln, Nebraska for a PhD program in counseling psychology. Um, but I just listened to your podcast about chapter 16 through the lens of grace, and I was 
thinking about and kind of wanted to get your opinion on how grace differs from privilege. Um, so I personally am an atheist and I'm very passionate about and strongly driven by values of social justice and compassion and sort of connection and caring for other people. So I've always struggled with the idea of a God or a sort of being who dispenses out grace to some people and then allows other people to suffer sort of arbitrarily. And in the episode, you both described sort of various examples of grace where I think the word privilege could have been substituted for kind of a very different um, take on the example. So like Harry and Ron being essentially let off the hook um, as an example of privilege that maybe less quote unquote special students wouldn't get or the privilege of having the support of sort of an entrenched and historical system like Hogwarts for the students that maybe other students or other children in the wizarding world don't have. And then Casper, you talked about the privilege of having gay rights activists before you fight for the rights that you have now. Um, and that's something I really resonate with as a woman because there are so many women who came before me to fight for my rights. And that's a privilege that I didn't earn, that I was lucky enough and privileged enough or um, to use the word grace, received grace, I suppose, to um, be born when I was. And so I just wanted to propose to you and kind of find out what you think about how the concept of grace differs from the concept of privilege. Thank you so much for your podcast. I love it. It makes me think and connects me to something that matters so much to me. So I look forward to hearing your answer. Thanks. Christina, I think you ask a really important question to try and differentiate between privilege and grace. I mean, in some ways, I think they're actually not that different from one another in, in the sense that, you know, if grace is something that is unearned, so is privilege. You know, privilege is real. And if grace is unearned and privilege is unearned, the only appropriate response is one of gratitude, as we talked about in the show, which should lead a response to be about responsibility. You know, that if, if you're given that privilege and you haven't earned it in any way, you have a duty to respond to ensure that other people are lifted up in the ways that you have been lifted up. John O'Donohue, who I've talked about before on the podcast, has this wonderful quote where he says, we are privileged and the duty of privilege is absolute integrity. And I think there's something very powerful about that. You know, once you've realized that actually I am privileged in these ways or, or I have received grace perhaps in these unexpected ways, the only response is one of absolute integrity. Does that make sense for you, Vanessa? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. But what's also interesting to me is the difference between grace and privilege and privilege to me is about recognizable social structures. So you are privileged to be a white person in America, right? Like that is a structural privilege, whereas grace can come into your life in very different ways. And grace seems situational to me and relational rather than systemic. So in the middle of a really horrendous day, someone just being kind to you, someone reaching out and helping you up. That is grace. That has nothing to do with your privilege. That is somebody, you know, a stranger reaching out their hand if you slip and fall. And I think that these two ideas can overlap. I think that as a person of privilege, as somebody who, as I've said before, is white and a woman and very non-threatening looking, I think that 
perhaps I am more predisposed for grace, right? People are more likely to help me up because of how I look. But that being said, I think that to some extent, grace is in most of our lives. There are moments of kindness. There are moments of love. There are moments of beauty in all of our lives. And it doesn't even always have to come from another. I mean, another moment of grace can be when suddenly inside yourself, there is a capacity to be kind or to forgive. So I do think you're right. There is some distinction there as well. Yeah. Gosh, thanks, Christina. Really appreciate that voicemail. Our second voicemail is from Margaret. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Margaret, and I love your podcast. I'm calling in to talk about the Death Day Party episode, which I know is a while ago. I'm a new listener, so I'm furiously trying to catch up. When we imagined ourselves as Ron in the scene where Harry hears the basilisk, I actually interpreted that by instead imagining Ron's upbringing in the wizarding world, as well as the context of the wizarding world as it has to do with mental illness. Because as I was imagining myself as Ron, really imagining myself as myself, I was so scared to see Harry's eyes rolling around wildly and seeing him, you know, stretch his ears up to the walls and the ceilings, and especially so scared to see him running with such urgency up the stairs. And I was scared because the lens through which I was seeing Harry was that of mental illness. And I felt concerned for his mental well-being and his feeling of safety, which was clearly lacking. So to me, when Ron says, you know, what on earth are you doing and what is causing this? You know, I didn't see it as a trusting action, though Ron is a very trusting and loyal person. Rather, I saw it as evidence of the fact that mental illness really isn't something that wizards talk about or consider ever. The most obvious example for me is in the fifth book because there's no mention of Harry's PTSD by the wizards in his company. And I think that readers do the exact same thing where I am reading the fifth book myself, a person with PTSD. I recognize Harry right away. I see him. I completely understand his outbursts and his anxiety and his maximum irritability when he feels that he has no control. And later in the fact that he is just so sick of doing the work to make himself feel better and to make the world a safer place for him, that he would rather not do the work anymore. But my friends who do not have PTSD just hate the fifth book because they think that there's no earthly reason for Harry to behave that way and they find him really annoying. And I think that that is also the curse of the wizarding world because they too are looking for those earthly reasons for someone to behave in a non-normative way. Just the way that Ron is asking, what on earth is going on? You know, he's looking for those tangible reasons because I think that wizards don't really ever deal with mental illness. They only deal with tangible, fightable, I, I, you know, people and objects and spells. And I think that they're a little bit behind the times in that way. I was wondering what you thought about the wizarding world and mental illness. So that's my take on that chapter. I look forward to catching up. Thanks. Thank you so much, Margaret. You know, I'm really struck by what you're bringing to our attention of this absence of mental health as a conversation in the books. You know, I think in some ways that's very reflective of where we are still in society at large today, that there is still a stigma around mental health. And that's something we really want to change. You know, Vanessa, do you see elements of mental health show up in the book somehow? Yeah. And I think that the way that we see it, to Margaret's point, is exactly how we see it in the world, which is it pops up in the periphery but isn't explicitly spoken about. So, you know, Hermione 
does this beautiful description in book five of why Cho might be kissing Harry and crying about it. And she says, well, Cho obviously is very upset about Cedric's death. She goes through all of the different feelings that Cho might be feeling due to the like PTSD of having been in love with somebody who was killed suddenly. And we see, you know, the Longbottoms in St. Mungo's in one of the later books who are victims of torture and have suffered mentally because of that. But none of these things are explicitly discussed as mental health. And they're whispered about. And there's some, like, shame and confusion around them. And I think that the books overall, I think that the Dementors are really a great symbol of what it feels like to go through a depression. And I think that there are a lot of metaphors for mental health issues. But I agree that there doesn't seem to be any evidence that the wizarding world tackles the conversation of mental health in a direct way. I mean, it's also interesting to think about, you know, what would it be like to have the power of magic and yet be depressed, for example? So often magic is the quick solution to a sticky problem, you know, like doing the dishes. But I would be not surprised if the powers of magic can actually not deal with these big questions that come up, right? It doesn't change love and fear. So why would it change an experience of mental illness? Right. I mean, something that we'll have the opportunity to talk about more in Prisoner of Azkaban is Lupin. You know, a lot of people say that the metaphor of Lupin as a werewolf is a metaphor for the AIDS crisis. But I think that there's also a way to absolutely read mental health problems onto Lupin. But again, it's like only through metaphor. It is not through seeing wizards have conversations in any sort of way that we can deduce how the wizarding world deals with mental health. I guess we do know that there's some shame around it. Neville For whatever reason, and maybe I'm projecting shame, but Neville does not feel comfortable telling people that his parents are sick. And it could be because he wants to respect their privacy, you know, for any number of reasons. But there does seem to be a desire to keep mental health issues a secret. Yeah. Thanks, Vanessa. And thanks, Margaret. Thank you, Margaret. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G E T. 
quip.com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own Fleur sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Hey, Casper and Vanessa. My name is Megan. Um, and I was fascinated by this idea that Going through heartbreak allows us to better understand our own capacity to um, break someone else's heart. But I think, I think there's like more to that as well. Like there's this thing that happens when our hearts are broken that automatically we're able to like love deeper the next time. And I, I don't know what's making me think of this, but um, there's this Jenny Lewis song uh, that talks about how, like, with every broken heart, we should become more adventurous. And I think there's something to that. Like, when your heart is broken and you heal, you're able to, like, dive in deeper the next time, you know? And, and maybe that's not the healthiest way to look at heartbreak, you know? And uh, maybe it's not... The most rational way. But I think there is some sort of empowerment that happens when um, you are able to get through heartbreak and look back and be like, hey, I did that. Like, now I'm in this new relationship. And if I can get through that, that means I can, no matter what happens in this relationship, like, I will get through that as well. I don't know. So just a thought. Um, and something that I want to hear you guys talk about a little bit. Thanks. Bye. Megan, I love your voicemail. I completely disagree with you. In my experience, the more heartbreak that someone endures, the more guarded they become. Casper, what do you think? I love Megan's point. And you know what it reminded me of was the car. I mean, I'm getting a little metaphorical here, but like the car in this book, it is like slammed and rammed all through the sky. It bashes into the tree, but into the forest it goes. And then like it just grows stronger and more powerful as it rescues the boys as they come out of the the lair of Aragog. And so there's a trust in our resilience, which I think Megan is pointing to that. I think it's beautiful. Oh, I love the idea. It's just not anything that I've witnessed in the world. I mean, a platitude that means a lot to me is this too shall pass. And I think that when I'm in a tough position, I'm like, oh, I've gotten through this before and this too shall pass. But at the beginning of something, of anything, if 
Um, so I always found the beginning of school semesters to be very stressful, figuring out which classes, running around, all of that transition is really stressful. And never was I like, it's okay. I got through it last semester. I hate it every time. And to some extent, my like resources started diminishing. It was like, I don't know how many more times I can do this. I don't know how many more times I can go through this. And I love this like offer of reframing it, of instead being like, look, I survived last semester. I'm going to try again this one. That just like that has not been my natural response to things. There are moments where I am knocked down and I just see it as an opportunity to get up stronger than ever. I just like that is not my natural reaction to disappointment. My natural reaction to disappointment is, oh, my God, I just got smacked down. Maybe I should think before standing back up again. Which totally makes sense. I hear you absolutely. So maybe, you know, what Megan is pointing to is a kind of aspirational of once we felt that pain or tiredness or, or disappointment to hope again when the time is right. But um, I really, I, I love that voicemail. Thank you, Megan. Yeah. Megan is calling me to be aspirational to being Megan. <laughs> Megan sounds awesome. <laughs> Our final voicemail this week is from Abigail Morris. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I was thinking about the episode on Chapter 14, Cornelius Fudge and Loyalty, and how you discussed using the books as a guide to examine our own government for signs of corruption and when we would want to fight against it. It made me think about reading the Harry Potter books with my eight-year-old twins, Eleanor and Matilda. They have loved reading the first two books, and I assumed they were just getting a general love of books and Harry Potter from them. But in the fall, their school music teacher fell ill during their class time. He told their class he was fine. Eleanor later told us that she could tell he was very sick because he looked putrid like Ron in book two. So while Matilda and a classmate worked to keep the room calm, Eleanor sent the fastest runner to the nurse for help, and she sat with the music teacher. The nurse quickly arrived, called an ambulance, and they took the teacher to the hospital. A few days later, his wife called to tell the principal that the teacher had had a massive stroke and that the doctors felt that the children acting quickly probably saved his life. When I talked to my daughters about what happened, they said that they knew that Harry Potter would have done the right thing and not listened to his teachers. And they knew that the right thing was getting help. I was originally shocked that my daughters stayed calm in this stressful situation and also maybe helped save their teacher's life. Afterwards, I was even more impressed that they learned a tricky lesson of when to listen to authority and when not to listen to authority at the age of eight from Harry Potter. This makes me hopeful that as we continue with the series, they will learn more valuable lessons, and maybe learn to be a little more rebellious against power structures that aren't in their best interest. And just think, maybe children all around the world who are reading these books are getting that same message and will work to help make the world a better place. Thanks, and I love your podcast. Abigail, that is such a beautiful story. Oh my gosh, a blessing for your two little girls. What an amazing just an amazing feat of competence and love and thoughtfulness and, and rebellion courage. and courage. Wow. That's beautiful. I, I literally just wiped a tear from my eye. That's fine. I'm not embarrassed. And you know what? I will say that 
There are eight-year-olds reading these stories right now, learning these lessons. But there are also 28-year-old and 38-year-old people who, you know, so many of us who read these stories who who want to live like that and who want to and who are living like that. And and yeah, I'm just oh, I'm so grateful for the books and for this community who read it together and for you for sharing this story. It's extraordinary. Your little girls are going to make amazing co-presidents one day. That is what the real goal is. Yes. So we are so lucky to be joined by Rabbi Scott Perlow, a rabbi at Sixth and I Historic Synagogue in Washington, D.C., who is a great friend and has generously joined us here at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Scott, welcome. Thank you. And let's be clear about who's lucky to be here. You two may just made me like a minor celebrity in my own family who are obsessed with the podcast, by the way. Not obsessed with Judaism, but the podcast matters to them. Hopefully this will bridge the two. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> now, Scott, one of the questions I always have for, for people who you know enter in some form of ordained leadership, which is why did you become a rabbi? You know, I think that actually it began in a physical room that's much like the digital one that we're in right now. Unfortunately, we're not seeing each other face to face, but um, I'm sort of imagining us in like this digital Beit Midrash, like place where people study. So my dad was raised what we'd call modern Orthodox of the Lithuanian tradition, which was like a very rigorous, harsh, difficult kind of pedagogy and education and spiritual practice. There's a lot of beauty and its austerity, but it's not known for having like soft corners. And um, the minute he got to college, he like left it all. I mean, he went to Brandeis and that was it for his connection to observant Judaism until much later. And when I was 13 years old, or actually about 12 years old, and I started training for my bar mitzvah, my dad started asking me questions about the person who was training me and about what it was like. And he was just so upset because it was this very workmanlike process. And he yanked me from it and sort of like returned to being orthodox again just to torture me for the next uh, year and a half or so. But what he did is he brought me very unwillingly up the street to this rabbi whose name is uh, by Eli Shochet, and we would study on Saturday afternoons something called Perkeavot, which means like teachings of the fathers. It's the great aphorisms of the great rabbis of the Talmud. And I found freedom in that room. I was the youngest person by far. Um, the median age was like 75, and I lowered the average by a good 40 years. But what I realized is this is like it was this incredibly radically free place. What mattered wasn't who you are, where you came from or or what your background was or, you know, what your social life was or what your religious practice was. The question was, could you ask a good question? Mm. Could you search for truth? And something about me, like little 13 year old me, realized that. And it was eight years later when I was speaking to that same rabbi on the phone, Rabbi Shochet, and he just said to me, go to the seminary and get it over with already. <laughs> And, and that I was quote. that. <laughs> and that was that. I'd never thought of it before. And when he said it, I just sort of had this moment. Um, I think my Christian colleagues would call that the call. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. Um, and you've regretted it only half Ever of the since. days. <laughs> I love what I do. Um, you know, it challenges me on a daily basis, both sort of mind, body, and soul. And so the question for me at this time is not, why did I go into it? Is why do I stay? Mm. 
because you know as basically any this is might be an apocryphal story but <laughs> Hillary Clinton when she was being grilled on healthcare the first time around when she was first lady apparently a journalist asked her like how do you put up with the stress and the pressure and like the corrosive comments and she looked at the person she said have you ever sat on the board of your local church or synagogue she's like this is nothing So, like, you know, when you put human beings together, we get really intense about not always really important things. And so the reason I stay is because, like, I actually am incredibly blessed with the job that I have right now. And one of the things that we get to do is to try to get people together to yearn to be something greater, um, to overcome some of our own limitations, to reach something higher, to connect with something bigger. And as long as I get to do that, like, more days than not, I stay as a rabbi. Can I ask you, like, a really annoying question? It's like the Hillel question of if you had to explain Judaism to someone who knew little to nothing about it, what is the one thing that you love most about it that you would want to share with them? Hmm. I think that, like, the message is that your job as a human being is to be of use to other humans and to God, and it's going to take time to learn how to do that. Hmm. That's beautiful. And then the other piece of it is like, you know, and so you don't just live for yourself in Jewish life, you live for others. And then it takes a long time to learn how to be of use. And that's where the study component comes in. That's why we're always learning. That's something that Ariana said to me once, that I care a lot about training Mm. and Mm. that I care a lot about being ceremonially approved to do something. And I do just think that it's a Jewish thing in me. It's like, well, did you learn? Did you work hard? (laughs) Did you study? Did you sit over a book? Right. And it's not the ordainment of it or the authority of it, but I want people to have put in the the studying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel the same way. I mean, I think that, like, I've gained so much through the process of just sort of cutting my teeth on hard text and also learning about how to be a rabbi, how to help, how to serve through situations. It just feels like there's always a book open in front of me, and you never stop being a student. You know, that's when I hear the voices of like my Lithuanian, just to go back to my dad, when I hear the voices of my Lithuanian ancestors like whispering to me in a positive sense, what they're whispering is like, did you learn? Did you learn? Did you learn? Like, there's no time to stop. Like, keep studying. Keep studying life. And and that's something that's, there's a certain kind of pressure to living that way, but I also think a lot of beauty. Amen. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So, Scott, you know, you you talked earlier about this focus on learning and the love in Judaism of study. And even, I mean, this question of of the listening pose, there's something about sitting over a book together, which for us with this project around Harry Potter, there's so many people sitting bent over that book and, you know, Mm. just delving into this text and the stories and the the echoes between different parts of the books. But I'm I'm curious for you, what role has kind of studying text played in your own spiritual life? I mean, obviously, it's part of your job. So that line is maybe sometimes difficult to to find. But how, if at all, has kind of studying text supported you? I think that like, the way that I understand the connection between text and life is that everything is opaque until you break beneath the surface to understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are parts of life that present themselves as obvious, but most things in the world I consider to be non-obvious, right? If you see a person and you label that person as evil, like clearly you've missed the complexity of the human being in front of you. People do evil things all the time and you can't separate yourself from like 
how people act. But there's not a human being out there that isn't just sort of a mess of complexity and anxieties and good emotions and bad emo- emotions. You know what I mean? So, like, I guess, like, the thing that text gives me is the idea that life is non-obvious and that if you're patient and you're willing to sort of sit it out a little bit and listen and learn and ask, you almost always get to the good stuff beneath the surface. I mean, this may sound a little controversial, but I sort of distrust when people tell me that their morality comes, that it's an intuition, that they feel right and wrong inside them. I know that they do, but I've met people who feel that like over abortion, for example, just as strongly with the same moral intuition. So how is it possible that two people can have the same amount of moral intuition about the exact same problem in opposite ways? My God, that's mind-blowing. So the idea there is that if you create a set of tools to pierce what doesn't seem to be easily understandable, and then you go beneath the surface and you sort of start to get those pieces, all of a sudden life becomes not less full of confusion, but much more full of meaning. And in fact, the word that we use in Hebrew to talk about piercing that surface, lidrosh or drasha, either means to pierce or to inquire or to even require. There's an urgency about it. So like, the adrash is something that like inquires or seeks deeply into what's in front of it and makes what's opaque or not understandable intelligible. Mm. Is the adrash related to in any way to midrash? Yeah. Yes, it is indeed. Midrash is the body of literature that uses that tool called drash. Yeah. I'm so good at Hebrew. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm glad that's your takeaway, Casper. It's <laughs> always Casper's takeaway. Self, self-affirmation. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, I, th- I think this is I think this is really important because the I mean, what I loved and, and this is coming from a Christian context, but may translate as well in a Jewish one is we don't read the Bible just for kind of obvious, you know, what you were saying, like we're looking for the non-obvious. And in some ways, having that text as a resource for a community and the generations of readers who have read these texts in community. And yeah, it's just like a helpful, not, not, a, not a check and balance per se, but, but the, the text has something to say to us in a way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, drash is the way that we keep Torah eternal. We keep it eternally fresh. Without drash, I don't know how we would do it. And, you know, one of the stories that the Talmud even tells about this process of inquiry, of of sort of textual seeking and the tools, is it like the story that it tells about itself is there was once a king who had two servants and was going out of town and gave each of them like a sack of flour. I, I know that sounds like crazy, but like that's the way that the story is. And one of the servants was like, oh, well, I got this sack of flour here. I got this sack of grain, actually, is what it was. I have the sack of grain you know, the pieces of seeds of wheat. And my king gave it to me, my master gave it to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep it safe. So he put it under his pillow and he just kept it safe at night. But the other person, the other servant, what that servant did is he took the grain and he milled it into flour. And then he took the flour and baked it into bread. And when the king came back, he said, here is the finished product. Here's the bread. And the other guy said, no, here's the flour. I mean, the grain, I was just looking after it like you told me to do. And... Uh, The Talmud is not like a shy document. So it basically says to the first servant who said the grain, like, idiot, do you think that's what I gave you grain for? And so one of the things that Drosh presumes is that the literal text in front of us is the raw material for meaning, not meaning itself. It's the seed that grows the tree. It isn't yet a fully grown organism. That is so cool. 
So, Scott, you know, one way to dig into the text and see if it, you know, will withstand uh, the kind of inquiry that we're giving it is the different spiritual practices that we've been using. And we're hoping that you can tell us a little bit about Pardes, which is another textual practice from the Jewish tradition. Mm. Yes, I'd be happy to. Pardes is is an acronym in Hebrew. The word itself means orchard and talented rabbis love to do this. They were really masters of language. They cared deeply, deeply, deeply about even the structures of individual words. So when they would come up with their acronyms, that it resonated, that the pardes is an orchard where the etz chaim, the tree of life, lives, was important to the person who apparently came up with this phrase. His name was Moshe de Leon. And Rabbi Moshe de Leon, he's a, a medieval rabbi. And amongst other things, he's credited with composing the major book of Kabbalah, the Zohar, uh, the, the book of mystical light. So pardes means orchard, but if you separate all the words out in Hebrew, what you get is um, pshat, which is the undressed or literal meaning of the text. Remez, and there's some disagreement about what remez means. The word in Hebrew means hint, and it either means like what letters are in the word and what letters are out of the word, sort of a hypertextual way of reading it, or actually just like what does this episode in the Torah hint to you about other episodes in the Torah? Drash, which is the most sophisticated and like, you know, has the biggest guns of them all, which is a series of techniques for like pushing through the obvious parts of the text, making deeper and unseen and unexpected connections with other parts of the text, comparing similarities in words and roots and juxtaposition. And it's the major like tool by which the Talmud and the Midrash operate to actually make Jewish law and come up with Jewish philosophy. And the last one is sowed, the hidden meaning. And to quote a rabbi that I was reading about this uh, online, he's like, I have no idea what sowed means. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the point of it is sowed is only revealed to – and I – by the way, I was – I love you know, the idea of the podcast. So I actually thought up Harry Potter examples for all of these. Oh, awesome. <laughs> if, if I possibly can. Um, so I'll give you sowed. But sowed, the great teacher Maimonides, like the – Probably like the smartest Jew who ever lived hey. said that this. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's fine. Okay. I guess I respect my monodies. He said that sod is that actually it's built into the Torah and that the Torah is actually a purposeful enigma. And the way it's built is like a golden apple that's held within a silver casing that has little holes in it. So if you look, you can see the gold inside. But only certain people can compose the true picture of what it was intending to say. That the Torah is purposefully difficult. So, pardes as um, according to Harry Potter. Shall we do it? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. So, I just saw the last one that I saw was Chamber of Secrets. So, that's the one that was on my mind. Whoa. That's just the one that we've been reading. Oh, fantastic. All right. So, you know, clearly this is fate. It's intended. So what I was thinking about the fact that Harry is a parcel mouth, parcel, parcel tongue, parcel mouth. He parcel is tongue. a parcel mouth and speaks, speaks parcel, parcel tongue. Thank you very much. I'm sorry for forgetting the distinction. I know it's important. So he is a parcel mouth and he speaks parcel tongue. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is the way that actually parcel tongue winds its way through the books. And that makes it a great example of how to use the Parday system. So if you were looking for the shot, 
the undressed meaning of Harry being a parcel mouth and being able to speak parcel tongue? What would you say? What's like the literal stuff about Harry, you know, being able to speak snake essentially? Just that he can communicate to snakes. <laughs> right. So, so the most basic level is that he's got this thing and it's, you know, he can talk to snakes and that's crazy. But part of the literal meaning of it is also that like people, other people in the wizarding community think that parcel mouths are evil, right? That's a shot thing. It's not particularly um, hidden or difficult. And so for that, like, that Harry's, the shot meaning is that Harry's ability to speak parcel tongue brings suspicion upon him. That's the shot of the text. That's the undressed meaning of the text, okay? So going to the stage of Remes of the hint, what we would do is we would, like, look at the other instances in the story where Harry uses parcel tongue. And a lot of them, by the way, are even though it's sort of an evil it's a sign of evil wizards. We notice that Harry uses them actually almost always for good, right? The Chamber of Secrets couldn't, be, couldn't have been opened if Harry wasn't a parcel mouth. And he could not have opened Salazar Slytherin's locket unless he was a parcel mouth, right? So the Remus side of it would be just sort of to see the way that the idea courses itself through all of the books of the story. Do you mind just reminding us what Remes means? Remes means hint. I'm so sorry. So this is the stuff that's hinted at, like where you can see it, the way it plays out in in the rest of the story. There's biblical examples of this too, in which like there's basically people sort of get what they give or give what they get, like sort of ideas like that that parse it out. But Harry's parcel tongue is, or the fact that Harry is a parcel mouth is the thing that ultimately allows him to fulfill his destiny. Mm, beautiful. Okay. That makes sense. Now the drash is where we go even deeper and would be like, listing all of the examples in which Harry speaks Parseltongue. So this is where, like, I wish I had more expertise in the book, but one of the words that gets used in Harry's multiple experience with Parseltongue is the word open. So one of the things that we can sort of get in here is that when we're getting to this idea of drosh, the deeper meaning, the sort of metaphorical meaning, is that Harry is always actually opening up evil things in order to do good. Whoa, mind blown. Oh, man, that's dangerous. I do not know how I feel about that. I know, I know, right. That's how you know it's like a good drasher and just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Right, but so one of the things that like we think of Harry, the obvious version of Harry is that he means good and does good. Right. But the non-obvious version of Harry is that Harry actually could not have accomplished anything without his access to things that are evil. Mm. Gosh, this makes me think about like, you know, just the world of politics and the dark arts of spin and like, you know, playing the media and gosh, yeah, that's really interesting. Right. So all of a sudden life got more complex for Harry. Right. Right. Yeah. And making sure that you use those tools for good. I mean, he even in the moment that you're talking about when he opens the locket by telling it to open in parcel tongue, mm-hmm. um, he hands the sword to Ron to destroy it. Right. And so right. it's like you even sometimes need an ally to destroy it for mm. you, like to keep you in check. Mm. Um, right, because when, he, when he's wearing the locket, his mood goes sour, right? He becomes selfish and bitter. Right. And so you, can't, you literally can't carry that on your own, kind of like the ring in Lord of the Rings, yeah. Right. Wow. So the way that we do that is by looking, like making those lists. And we actually have a bunch of tools in Judaism that have to do, like I said, with juxtaposition and logical inferences and 
What we just did was called Gezeira Shava, where you compare the appearance of the same words in multiple settings to derive meaning. Okay, so now we get to the really mystical level, oh, which is sewed. This is the mystery. How, what do we do now, Scott? So there is one person in the Harry Potter books that understands the sewed. There's like a Kabbalist in Harry Potter who always seems to understand the higher story. And it's, of course, Dumbledore who knows the sewed, mm. which is that Harry is the Horcrux. Mm. Right? The sewed of it is not just simply that Harry can speak parcel tongue or that he is a parcel mouth. But what that means is that there, he is actually part Voldemort. And only Dumbledore knows that sewed, that secret. And it has to be kept from Harry, right? Because the sewed can be dangerous. Imagine like right. Harry gets to school the first day of the first book. He gets to Hogwarts and they're like, welcome, Harry Potter. Here's a sorting hat. By the way, you're part Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> Have a nice freshman year. <laughs> right. Fix your hair. Yeah. <laughs> and you're part Voldemort. <laughs> the sewed is never benign. The sewed is always kind of risky. Scott, I just reread one of my favorite essays, um, which is Freud's On Melancholia. Hmm. And he has this great section where he talks about um, melancholics, as he calls them, people with depression. And he says, um, what's so interesting about them is that they tend to predict the future better. Hmm. They tend to have a better understanding of the world around them. And yet there's clearly something wrong with them, right? Like. Hmm. Even in psychology, Freud is noticing this thing of, like, seeing too much of the truth hmm. is, like, is clinically unhealthy. It's really difficult. And, and one of the things I want to say is that um, one of the things I think this means is that we have to see the truth with each other in order to protect each other. Here, here. Mm. Scott, thank you so much. This is just uh, such a gift. A gift from the traditions. (laughs) I was so, like I said, um, thank you for increasing my status in my own family. Well, listen, speaking of your family, I I just want to say a blessing for your father who got you sitting down over those books, age 12, 13, because you've given us a real beautiful insight to to this beautiful practice of Pades and and to the work you do. So thank you. Thanks to your dad as well. (laughs) I will. Vanessa Casper, thanks so much. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we're going to do a whole book review, which we're really excited to do. Please make sure to go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com, and go to our crowdfunding campaign. We really appreciate all of your support. And for those of you who haven't had a chance yet, make your donation today. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Kasper Terkail, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Ball. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. We'd like to offer a special thanks to Afim Shapiro and the Panoply Studio in Washington, D.C. for hosting Scott today. A big thanks to Christina Richardson, Margaret, Megan Crowley, and Abigail Morris for their fabulous voicemails, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Stephanie Purcell, and of course, the wonderful Scott Polo for joining us on this episode. Thanks all for listening. We'll see you next week. 
They Can I just swore. say that like stories about these rabbis is like I've, it's like some of my favorite stories, and I feel like westerns are based on this, right? Oh. Like four guys getting together, and sorry, this is you like you can see like their dusty like leather clo- <laughs> like as they cross the street at high noon, kind and of a thing. student came to them and asked <laughs> them. Right. I love it. Please continue. Like, I'm so happy. You're so right. It's the it's like the Jewish, really anxious version of a western. I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.